0: If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need.
1: At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit
2: NoFearDentist.com.
3: I love my teammates, and I love my supportive family. They make it all possible. I'm coming back for my 23rd season in Tampa. Unfinished business. Let's fucking go. Hello, and welcome to Take Line. It's me your guy, Jason Concepcion. We've got a a wonderful show for you today. I'll be talking to Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal, who uh, had his weekend blown up like many of us did by Tom Brady's surprise return after a 40-something day retirement. I guess it depends on how you exactly count the amount of days since he retired, but he's back. Plus – We'll be talking about Calvin Ridley's indefinite suspension from the NFL after he admitted to gambling on NFL games. And I also talked to Dan Wolken of USA Today, who's going to give us a great preview of the NCAA tournament, which I always need, because that's the one thing I have missing in my life is a workable and strong knowledge of college basketball. So lots of good stuff today. And I'll talk to Joshua Robinson of The Wall Street Journal about uh, the ongoing developments, with Chelsea in the wake of Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich's sanction and announced sale of the club. But first, the Nets uh, beat the Knicks on Sunday. It was a close one. No Kyrie, but he was sitting there uh, courtside. And after the fact, KD uh, uh, in the postgame just teed off on uh, New York City's vaccine mandate rules and, by extension, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. So Kyrie was sitting courtside, wearing a beautiful, what looked like a suede shirt, was very engaged. It was definitely a weird, it's a weird thing to see the star point guard for the home team who is healthy and can play sitting courtside in seats that he paid for uh, and not playing for the team. Now, this is a result of an interesting loophole in New York City's uh, vaccine mandate rules which allows players and performers who uh, come from out of state or live out of state, as uh, Kyrie Irving does, as a resident of New Jersey, uh, allows them to, under the more relaxed rules now, to come and watch games, not have to be vaccinated to come and watch a basketball game. But it still stipulates that people who live in the city and work in the city uh, have to get vaccinated to perform their jobs. Kevin Durant said the following.
2: Yeah, I don't get it. It just feels like at this point
1: now, somebody's trying to make a statement or a point um, to flex their authority. Um, but, you know, everybody out here looking for attention, and
2: that's what I feel like the the mayor wants right now, some attention, you know?
3: Okay. Hold on a second. The mayor, first of all, Eric Adams is a wild guy. That guy, I think... I'm not going to say that Eric Adams doesn't want attention, but I will say that, like... The idea that Eric Adams is specifically flexing the authority vested in him by the people of New York City, specifically if you keep Kyrie Irving off the court, is insane. I talked about it on the show a few weeks ago. It feels distant to us now because we've been living in this fucking crazy time for the past three years. But at one time, there were thousands of people dropping dead, dying, passing away in the U.S. from COVID every single day. New York City was the epicenter of that. And the uh, state and local officials were groping around for ways that they could try and stem the tide. When the vaccines became available, that became a way to do it. Make sure that New York City employees, uh, various state and city employees uh, are vaccinated before they enter common areas like offices, other places of business. Now, why is it that A player for the Brooklyn Nets who is unvaccinated can't play, but a player for the Indiana Pacers or the Charlotte Hornets who is unvaccinated can come to the Barclays in Brooklyn and play. Because New York City's ability to pass laws stops at the borders of New York City. They can't pass a law that affects uh, people from Charlotte or people from Indianapolis, or they could, but that would effectively cut off any kind of travel to and from those places. So they did what they had to do and what they could do and what they could do in the most efficient and easiest way they could uh, while an emergency was going on, and that is pass a law that dealt with the citizens of New York City. Now, does it look goofy now? It looks a little goofy when Kyrie can't play. Yes, I admit that. But you also have to like look at it in the context of what had happened, which was like an immense public health emergency. And I get it. Like KD is out here. He's pulling for his guy. He came to the Nets because he wants to win a title. He's friends with Kyrie. The plan was for them to do it together. It's certainly like Kevin Durant is good enough To win it on his own, as we saw in the postseason last year. The idea that like New York City is specifically uh, trying to suppress Kyrie Irving is just false. It's not, it's not correct.
2: Hopefully it gets figured out. Like I said, Eric, you gotta, I mean, you gotta figure something out, man, because, you know, it's looking crazy, especially on national TV and he can come to the game but not play. Like, come on, man.
3: Again, Eric has things to deal with, like, a growing uh sense of dangerousness around the city owing to a bevy of disturbing attacks on asian uh, citizens of new york city he's having to deal with uh you know cratering real estate prices and various other things inflation as as many other uh, state and local lawmakers are having to deal with he's having to deal with policing how policing will happen uh, in the context of the city, in the context of the ongoing public health emergency, in the context of a population that largely distrusts the police, uh, these are all just like a few of the priorities there. Eric Adams, who, again, is a wild almost unhinged wild man guy who will say stuff like and this is like i'm being hyperbolic now but eric adams will be like hey what if we had uh the cops rappel down ropes like at like out of a black hawk wearing uh like super uh, robocop mech suits like that that's a thing that eric adams w- will like kind of pitch sometimes so he's a wild guy but he's got a lot on his plate not specifically kyrie and i understand uh Katie's frustrated but Guess what? It turns out changing laws actually takes some time. It's actually like hard to do. If you change a law to benefit one person or give one person an exception, now there's going to come all these other people out of the woodwork, including you know hundreds if not low, low low thousands of city employees who lost their jobs because of vaccine mandates now all of a sudden they're going to be flooding into the court system saying hey what about me why can't i come back they let Kyrie play why can't i come back and work uh so there are a lot of knock-on effects to just being like okay Kyrie, you have an exception uh that are simply and it's sad to say this although it i'll admit it does give me pleasure to say this as a knicks fan that are sadly below the attention of the mayor of New York city and frankly should be. That's right. March madness is nearly upon us. The NCAA tournament uh, unofficially began on Sunday with the selections for the first round matchups selection committee has done its job and now it is time for Dan Wolken, national NCAA basketball writer for USA Today to do his job, which is to make us here at Take Line smarter about picking our brackets, about filling out our brackets, and just about uh, informing us about these teams. Because straight up, if there is a hole in my sports knowledge, it is the NCAA basketball uh, that we all love and watch every March. Dan, thank you for joining Take Line.
1: Appreciate you having me. Thanks for asking. Glad to be here.
3: So did the selection committee uh, get it right uh, this year? It feels like every year th- there's like 63 teams that everybody absolutely agrees with. And then there's five that are everyone is like, what happened? Uh, what What are your thoughts on uh, what we saw today?
1: I actually just wrote a column about this that uh, you guys can check out at usatoday.com. And I think the biggest problem with the committee is they just don't have a lot of time. All mm. of these results come in Saturday night, Sunday, yep. and they are facing a 6 p.m. Eastern deadline to get this bracket out to CBS so that they can put it on television before 60 Minutes starts every single year. And there's just a lot of moving parts, and they screw up some things. <laughs> Most of the time, they get the right teams, although I think this year Texas A&M was a mistake. I would have had A&M in. They did not put them in. I thought AM played really well in the SEC tournament. They beat Auburn. They beat Arkansas, two very highly seeded teams. I would have had AM in. I think the biggest issue is seeding. You know, typically, yeah, you can make an argument one way or the other about one or two teams at the very bottom of the bracket, but I, I think they just mess up the seeding way too often. Just as an example, Tennessee, they got seeded number three in the South region. But most of the pundits and prognosticators, especially after this SEC tournament run that Tennessee was on, had them not just as a number two seed, but maybe even the strongest number two. Interesting. It just looks lazy on the part of the committee that they don't really account for what happens in these conference tournaments. And they do it every single year. I get it. They're pressed for time. And you move one team around in a bracket that can cascade into all these other moves you got to make. So I, I understand why, that these mistakes get made, but I just sort of wish they had more time to really go back and scrub all these seeds and make sure they're really getting it right.
3: Uh, process wise, you'd think that it, that an organization that is raking in the bucks every single year would figure out a way to just kind of like beef up this, uh, this little kink in the process up, but that's fine. So our number one seeds are Gonzaga, Baylor, Arizona, and Kansas. Uh, any thoughts there about who might be overrated, underrated, and their paths to the final four potentially?
1: Yeah, I, I think as far as the number one seeds, they they pretty much got them right. It's fairly obvious that those four were were deserving just based on the overall body of work. I think the biggest red flag with any of the number one seeds is that Baylor's had some injuries, particularly Jonathan Chomwichacha, who was such a huge part of their national championship team last year, just such a hardworking player who really gave them such a great identity, especially on defense. And he's out and they have not been quite as good since his injury. Baylor's still really good. You know, it's not like he was their best scorer or anything like that, but he just really gave them that kind of physical edge, um, and and really, you know, 5%, 10% of, of their defense, I thought, was just sort of his energy. So Baylor, I think, is probably the most vulnerable just just due to injuries. I think Kansas is really solid, and I thought they got a great draw, to be honest with you. Arizona, you can't argue with what they've done this season, 31-3. and three. I think they're the most complete team. And then Gonzaga, maybe not quite as dominant as they were last season, but they're awesome and you can't argue with them. So really it's that Baylor region where you look at them and say, are they vulnerable to maybe getting upset somewhere early?
3: How many, how many of your family and friends ask you to help fill out their bracket every year? <laughs> well, I'm not good at it. That's the problem. Is, um, <laughs> no one's good at it. Here's the thing. Right. No one's good at it. No one's yeah. actually good at it. Right. But I would imagine, listen, if if we were, if we were homies, I would be up in your text messages around this time every single year. Be like, Dan, help, help, help a guy out.
1: Well, here's the thing is just as far as strategy, take the specific teams out of it. You're probably better off most of the time going with favorites. And then when you do want to pick upsets, pick upsets with teams that you don't think are going very far anyway. Mm. In other words, like just as an example, Houston's a number five seed. I don't think they're really going very far in this tournament. I just don't think they have enough scoring to advance to the second weekend. So I'm going to pick UAB to beat them as a 12 seed over a five seed, because even if that pick doesn't work out for me, I think Houston's losing in the next round to Illinois anyway. So those are the kinds of strategic upsets you probably want to pick in the bracket. But, yeah, like, this thing is so crazy. I was there in the building when UMBC upset Virginia. I mean, I'm, I'm. this is not a joke. I was literally, like, on Yelp looking at where to go have dinner that night and just, like, getting out of the arena early because, yeah, oh, come on, Virginia's not losing to UMBC. And then all of a sudden you look up 10 minutes into the game and you're kind of going, hmm. And then at halftime, hmm. And then as the thing goes on, you're like, holy crap, I'm about to cover the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history. So that's just the way this tournament goes. Like you just yeah. can't predict some of these, some of these results.
3: Uh, this will be a uh, coach Mike Krzyzewski's final NCAA tournament. Uh, this comes on the heels of uh, some really disheartening losses, uh, including one to an absolutely ebullient North Carolina team. Uh, any, any reason to think that, uh, this team in its current form can make a, can make a run, especially if they manage to get past the stomach uh,
1: virus issues that seem to have been plaguing them in recent days. The more I've watched of Duke lately, the less I've liked, to be honest with you. They, they, first of all, they're young and and that's not always a great formula to have in the NCAA tournament. Paolo's a really good player uh, and they do have, have some dudes who are going to play in the NBA on their team, but, they don't really seem to be handling the pressure of this whole thing very well uh, of trying to get Mike Cheshevsky some of these big wins as he winds down his career. They, they did not play well against Carolina. I didn't think they played very well in the ACC tournament, even though they did get to the final. I think what's helping them here is their draw in the first weekend, I think, is pretty manageable. Like they're not going to have any problem with Cal State Fullerton. Then in the second round, they play Michigan State or Davidson. Two really good coaches, obviously, but I don't think this is a very good Michigan State team. So I've got Duke getting to to the Sweet 16, but that's where it gets interesting because, you know, if they end up playing Texas Tech in the Sweet 16, that's just a really physical team that just guards the hell out of you. And I'm not sure that's a great matchup for, for a very young Duke team. So I could see them losing in the Sweet 16, I just don't – I don't see a path for them necessarily making the Final Four uh, because you've got on the top half of that bracket Gonzaga, you've got Arkansas. I just think that's a lot for them to get through.
3: Uh, you mentioned Arizona as uh, one of the strongest, if not the strongest, most well-rounded team in the tournament, uh, and that the uh, the Pac-12 championship came between UCLA and Arizona as, as a possible championship preview uh, Pac-12 is – that's that's the uh, NCAA that I know. I, I love having the games on on Saturday night. Uh, I love Haquez and, and Um, What do you see in there with those two teams?
1: UCLA is really interesting to me because they obviously made this great run last year to the yeah. Final Four. It was electric, what they were able to put together, kind of coming out of nowhere. And then they bring everybody back, and there's all these expectations – on them, And you kind of get the sense just listening to Mick Cronin, that he kind of felt like they bsed their way through the regular season. Oh, you know that that they just kind of like, yeah, we're you know we're the dudes who made the final four last year, you know, whatever. Um that they didn't really always play hard. They didn't really, you know go after it like maybe he wanted them to all the time. But I still think there's a switch for them to flip. Here And and they've started to maybe do it a little bit more late in the season. I thought the Pac-12 championship game was great. I just thought the execution on both sides was really, really good. And, and to me, that just looked like a very high level of basketball. And I like UCLA's draw. I mean, Akron in the first round shouldn't be a problem. St. Mary's potentially in the second round should win that one. They're in the Baylor part of the bracket. So I think they got a great chance to, to beat Baylor. And then... In the Elite Eight, you're probably playing either Kentucky or Purdue. Very winnable games. Kentucky's good, no doubt about it. Different kind of Kentucky team. But I, I do like UCLA getting through and getting to the Final Four again. And then as far as Arizona, I mean, you just sort of look at them and, you know, you've got Benedict Matherin, who's unbelievable player, going to play a long time in the NBA, can create so many shots off the dribble. They've got shooters on the wings. They've got two traditional bigs who can score around the rim. They've got lineup versatility. Um, The one thing that is maybe a little bit of a concern is uh, Kirk Creasa has got a sprained ankle that he got in the Pac-12 tournament. You you hope that it's not serious and that he can be 100%, especially by the second weekend. They're 31-3 and this year. They've been awesome from beginning of the season to the end. So, I just, I like both of those teams in the final four. I really do.
3: Uh, what happened to the ACC this year? Yeah. Is it just, <laughs> is it just cyclical? You know, is it just, you, you've got some, uh, you know, legendary coaches nearing the end of the run uh, and just the cards falling in weird ways for other teams. Like what happened? This used to be the, this is usually uh, the power conference, North Carolina, Duke, et cetera,
1: Syracuse. What happened? Yeah. I think just some of these, Top programs are in transition right now. Uh, North Carolina, Roy Williams retires after last season, hands it over to Hubert Davis. They've been okay. I mean, they're in as a nine seed, or I'm sorry, as an eight seed this year, which is about where they belong. Uh, kind of underwhelming. You've got Syracuse, which just kind of continues to nosedive as yep. Jim Boeheim gets really, really old. Um, <laughs> and this was a bad season. I mean, this was a yeah, bad yeah. Syracuse season. Um, Louisville's a mess. For ever since the FBI scandal and Patino uh, getting taken down, uh, they made a hire in Chris Mack that just didn't work out. So they're looking for a new coach. I mean, you've got a couple programs that are just kind of stuck in the middle, like you know Clemson. And this was a bad Florida State year. Florida State's usually really good. Yep, just didn't didn't have it this year. So I don't know. Like the ACC on paper should be the best conference when you've got that many big time elite blue blood programs who want to be good, who invest a ton of money in basketball, but this is just a little bit of a weird transition time. And yeah, the ACC just was, was quite out bad this year.
3: Any predictions as, uh, as we bring this segment to a close (laughs) and we've learned so much from you, Dan, and now I'm going to do the thing that I said I would do, which is to ask you for some predictions. What are your predictions? If you have any Dan,
1: I'm going to go with a big one here to start off. First round, Jacksonville State, I've got upsetting number two seed Auburn in the first round. And here's why. Auburn has been awful away from home this year. Terrible, terrible, ter- terrible away from home. Um, they, they, they're like world beaters in Auburn. Everywhere else, they're, they're pretty average. Jacksonville State is um, actually in Alabama. A lot of people may not know that. Uh, So it's, it's kind of an in-state game and they're really interesting offensively. They shoot a ton of threes. This is not a typically like Bruce Pearl's teams kind of play freewheeling and shoot a lot of threes. Mm -hmm. This Auburn team does not shoot it very well. I like Jacksonville state to to pull a little bit of an upset or not a little bit a massive upset um, there. So I'm, I'm picking that. Uh, And again, I'm going back with my theory. I don't think Auburn's going very far anyway, so why not? Um I have uh UAB over Houston. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um I've got New Mexico State over Yukon as a as a 12-5 upset. Everybody loves those 12-5 upsets. New Mexico State's one of those programs. They're good every year out in the whack, and they kind of dominate out there. And they always have a couple really interesting players. And um, UConn's a little bit of a wild card team, and yeah. you know, they they kind of take on the personality of their coach Danny Hurley, who is he, he runs really, really hot, and I don't love that for the NCAA tournament. Like, I think you kind of need a little bit more even keel guy on the sidelines. So these games get really long, and the timeouts are long, and I just kind of feel like he, he kind of, he's going to kind of blow up. So, I, I like New Mexico State. I've got Arkansas in the Final Four in in the Gonzaga region. I think they're going to beat Gonzaga straight up. I think they're going to make the Final Four. I think um, they've been one of the hottest teams in the country down the stretch of the season. Didn't play great in the SEC tournament, but I don't care about that because I just don't think these conference tournaments matter very much. So I, I really uh, think Arkansas has got a shot and um, yeah, I've got two pack 12 teams, UCLA and Arizona. So uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, and I do think Kansas makes the final four.
3: Well, my brain uh, just gained five pounds because I got that much smarter listening to USA today, national NCAA basketball writer, Dan Wolka. Dan, uh plug anything you got right now. what do you what,
1: Where can uh, people find your stuff? Well, I just want to say first of all, if all these predictions are wrong, please erase it from the internet. <laughs> like it it will, that happened. will
3: immediately happen. I will make sure I'm tired to
1: uh, Zuri, Ryan, make sure we erase everything if Dan is wrong. and uh, yeah, just check out usatoday.com get a subscription. You can get uh, all my content. all everybody who works for us, all my my great colleagues will be covering the tournament like crazy over the next few weeks.
3: Uh, uh, Dan. Thank you again for joining us. Have a great one. No,
1: thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride. Every time, keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Well, it was uh, it was going to be a normal conversation about Calvin Ridley. Atlanta Falcons wide receiver who is now suspended indefinitely because he's been caught gambling on games. Then Tom Brady uh, tweeted that he's uh, unretired himself after retiring some 40 days ago. Here to discuss all of this with us is Andrew Beaton, NFL reporter for the wall street journal. Andrew, welcome to Takeline. Where were you on Sunday? And what were you doing when uh, Tom Brady tweeted the following quote, these past two months, I've realized my place is still on the field and not in the stands. The time will come, but it's not now. I love my teammates and I love my supportive family. They make it all possible. I'm coming back for my 23rd season in Tampa. Unfinished business. Let's fucking go. Uh, where were you when that happened at approximately 4.13 p.m. Pacific? Uh, and what were you doing? And had you any inkling that this would happen?
0: Well, it was 7.13 or so Eastern time right, then, yeah. which meant I was peeling some sweet potatoes and getting ready to cook dinner. It's supposed <laughs> to be a quiet Sunday night before NFL free agency starts Wonderful, getting yes. going. And then, did I see this coming? I think everybody sh- should have probably seen this coming, right? He hasn't exactly been subtle over the last month. That <laughs> He said, you know, one week after his Instagram post where he now announced his quote-unquote retirement, He's on his podcast saying, never say never. So it took him a week before he started equivocating. And then every hint since then has been that, all right, maybe we shouldn't be shocked if we see Tom Brady on a football field again.
3: Uh, You know, what's funny is when he announced his retirement now 40 something days ago, I was watching uh, Wickersham on ESPN talking about how, man, he's... Tom is more excited about his uh, post-playing career than maybe he has been about his actual playing career over the past couple of years. Like, he's talking about all the opportunities he's going to have and, and his foundation and its various business ventures that he's about to launch. And then, so that's gone in a second. You mentioned the timing, uh, NFL free agency looming. It seems like the, the timing of this announcement was with an eye towards that, Correct. I mean,
0: it's kind of hard to separate the two, right? Looking at this and looking at when he said this, right? If you're a free agent and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> right. do not have Tom Brady, <laughs> right. are they an attractive destination?
3: Uh, no.
0: I, we're going to say no. Yeah, We're going to vote no on that. And then if they have Tom Brady, you're thinking, all right, this is a team that can win a Super Bowl. So if he is going to make this decision to come back, it's in his own best interest to get it out ahead of free agency. Because he wants to plant that flag and say, hey, folks, come to Tampa Bay. We can m- make another run at this thing.
3: This is my favorite question that I've heard asked of of uh, national NFL reporters in the last uh, couple of hours since this news broke. What do you think happened? Did Tom walk in one day, walk into his palatial mansion, uh, get one look of his beautiful wife and children and just say, "Ah." Did I mess up? I guess I messed up. I guess I got to go back and play football. Any, any idea like what what it could possibly be driving this. And secondarily, uh, what do we say to the gentleman who who I think bid like half a million dollars on the final touchdown ball of Tom Brady like that guy needs to sue immediately?
0: <laughs> well, I, I just want to say if that guy bid half a million dollars on a football, um, I just hope that there's more money where that came from. If you just spending half a million bucks on that football. Right. So. Maybe it's someone that we don't have to feel absolutely terrible about it for. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot since he made this decision and then pretty much immediately there started to be speculation about will he or won't he come back is we can try to assign all these motivations, intentions, and, you know, psychology, but a lot of these decisions sometimes just come down to the whims of one human being, right? Right. And this is a guy who, you know, if you follow his Instagram account, he's hawking pants, he's hawking cryptocurrencies, NFTs, pretty much anything. And maybe just like all of us, he got bored with NFTs. I don't know. But (laughs) this this sometimes comes down to the whims of one guy. And the decision back February 1st when he put that out that Instagram post would seem like, all right, maybe he felt like that day he was done. Today he feels like he's not done.
3: Uh, okay, let's uh, switch over to what I think is a really fascinating uh, story about uh, Calvin Ridley, who has uh, now been banned indefinitely from the NFL after placing bets uh, totaling about $1,500, according to him. I haven't seen any confirmation anywhere else that, uh, that that is or is not the amount that was wagered, but it, it, according to him, is about $1,500 uh and uh, you know ridley had been taking some time off to deal with his uh, mental health and now will be uh, banned f- uh, for the foreseeable future and perhaps the foreseeable long-term future um this feels as black and white an issue as has come down the pike in the nfl in a while it's really pretty simple like whether it's a penny or a million dollars, the NFL pretty much has to be uh, completely like hardline with something like this.
0: No, I really think they have to because you know NFL players get in all sorts of trouble. Mm-hmm. Fans get past it, whether they should or they shouldn't. Teams sign players who have done way, way worse things than lay a bet on a football game. But if you think about the NFL as a business, the absolute worst case scenario. Right, for that could generate the craziest fan outrage, is something untoward in this space. You start fi- if you find out that a Super Bowl, an NFC Championship, heck, even a Jaguars Jets game, right, had some funny business going on with it in the gambling space. Fans would grab their pitchforks, and it would sort of open up an entire Pandora's box of all right, is what we're watching legitimate? Or what's the difference between this and pro wrestling then, if the guys in on it are laying those sorts of bets? And it's this very strange world, because if I told you five, 10 years ago that the NFL, which was so staunchly anti-gambling, would have gambling partners and basically be so gung-ho about this industry, you would have said, that's crazy. The NFL is the biggest anti-gambling advocates out there. So it's this strange space while they're cashing in on it, but they also have to have this really sharp line in the sand on the issue.
3: Yeah, let's unpack that for a second because it has been one of the most whiplash inducing 180s in sports writ large uh that I can remember. You know, we all uh we all recall Pete Rose being banned for life. Uh, but to your point, all our major sports took immense pains to keep themselves at arm's length from gambling, whether it was the NBA's extreme uh, sprint through the Tim Donahy investigation or, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of unwillingness to put a professional team for a long time in Las Vegas. It, 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 even the suggestion that gambling could in some way interact with uh, pro sports was seen as anathema. And now all of a sudden it's like, here we go open the floodgates. I'm sure that the NFL must have been planning for this contingency, right? They knew that this day would come. They knew that somebody would break the rule at some point. So uh, I wonder if you have any insight at all into what those kind of contingencies might be.
0: You know, one of the things that's interesting is Calvin Ridley got a lot of attention because he's Calvin Ridley. He's an Mm -hmm. extraordinarily good football player. Um, This actually happened with a an injured Cardinals player two years ago. And that was the first time it happened after the federal repeal on the gambling ban. So this happened before. Josh Josh Shaw got the same penalty, which was basically a year. I mean, he hasn't made it back into the league because he wasn't Calvin Ridley. He's not awesome at football. Um, But what's interesting about this whiplash is if you think back on it, what's funnier than the NFL making this pivot is that they didn't do it sooner. (laughs)
3: <laughs> because yeah, so the one thing, the, one thing the NFL
0: is so good at is yeah. making money. Yeah. And then one day they started to look at it and say, we can make an extraordinary amount of money doing right. this. You add new gambling partners. And in the bigger picture, one of the things that the league realized was all the fans that they've been trying to capture, you know, fans on their second screens, younger fans, people who might only be kind of paying attention to a game but want to engage with it in a different way. Those were audiences that the NFL, sort of like every other league, desperately wants to attract. And they looked at it and said, wait, this is exactly what gambling does. So gambling in many ways wasn't just a way to you know, cash a check from Caesars or what have you on some ads and some sponsorships. They actually realized, wait, this is an incredible way to actually try and grow our fan base. So it's amazing that it actually took so long when the profits for them are so big in so many ways.
3: So uh, Ridley was caught essentially because there is a, a, a like a third party uh, security firm that uh, works with the app that Ridley had used to gamble in the state of Florida. And that uh, kicked that information over to the NFL who then did what they did with it. Um, I, I, I would imagine one that the NFL is gonna make a. Going to make an example of Calvin Ridley, and I would imagine too that uh, the news that there are essentially like a third party companies that are working with this data in this way will come as something as a surprise to a lot of people, including uh, professional athletes who may think about gambling.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things to to remember here is that there's nothing bigger to bet on than football. When it comes to when it comes to what people are laying their bets on, I mean March Madness, which we've got coming up, is big. The NFL is still always king in terms of TV ratings, in terms of handle. We all know it, and all these books essentially have to be in some form or some way basically in business with the NFL because of that. And so they have to do all their own security and monitoring for for themselves, and it's in their own interest to work with the league to work with those third party security data analyst venu- vendors like Genius, which who's doing it for the NFL in this case, because, you know, their business with the NFL is what's most lucrative for the sports books. So it's in their best interest to do what they can to uphold that. And, you know, also, theoretically, if you're a sports book, you want to know if an NFL player is betting because they might know something. You don't want that.
3: Uh, Andrew, how was dinner? How were the sweet potatoes? I mean, we're
0: talking right now, so the sweet potatoes have not yet been eaten, but I okay, go sweet the, potatoes. What can go wrong?
3: He is Andrew Beaton, NFL National Writer for the Wall Street Journal. Andrew, thanks so much for joining. Take line, go eat the sweet potatoes. Go cook them and then eat them. Perfect, will do. Thanks so much, man. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie?
1: Let's turn to sanctions now. We know that the US, the UK, the EU have responded to this invasion with sanctions against Russian oligarchs. Well, the latest move by the UK government is to sanction the owner of Chelsea football club, Roman Abramovich. His assets will be frozen. That includes Chelsea. But the club will be allowed to keep playing.
3: The war in Ukraine continues, uh, triggering uh, scenes of mass tragedy, uh, over in England, it is also triggered a trigger reckoning with that country's relationship with money, with Russian oligarchs in particular. And uh, in front of that backdrop came uh, Chelsea versus Newcastle, which focused those issues pretty interestingly. To join us to talk about that is uh, Wall Street Journal reporter Joshua Robinson, who's based in Paris and therefore is up very early to talk to us. And we really appreciate that um joshua thank you for joining take line hey thanks for having me um okay so uh chelsea versus newcastle uh it had a little bit of a um but you know besides that how was the play mrs lincoln <laughs> vibes to it uh fine football match that was uh kind of framed by an ongoing conversation about the ownership group's Uh, For both clubs, Roman Abramovich uh, of Chelsea recently sanctioned Russian oligarch and then the Saudi investment group, uh, recent owners of Newcastle conversation around that uh, ownership group uh, after the game was focused on, you know, the multitude of executions that have taken place in Saudi Arabia Uh, as well as the dismemberment of a Washington Post reporter in recent years. Uh, Do I have that right, Joshua?
2: Yeah, that's right. And what it is, it's interesting because this just brought together a whole bunch of issues that are really the the story of the modern Premier League. Um, Right. You know, Roman Abramovich was the first of the kind of sugar daddy owners in the Premier League who showed up in 2003 no one really knew who he was. I mean, we're talking about a sale that was conducted with basically a cursory Google search.
3: He liked that too at the time. He I remember there were some it. quotes at the time where he was like, you'll forget about me. Exactly. Don't worry about
2: it. Exactly. So he cultivated that image. He was just a really rich guy who didn't look that rich because he showed up to the to sign the deal in like jeans and with a scruffy beard. And that's the way he wanted to keep it. Um, and but he was the first. He started that era of like crazily wealthy investors in the premier league and at the other end bookending it 19 years later we've got the saudi public investment fund um that took over newcastle after giving the premier league what they called legally binding assurances that they were not controlled <laughs> by the government um, of course mohammed crown prince mohammed bin salman is the chair of the public investment fund right um right. how you square those two things I'm not sure. I don't think anyone knows how the Premier League uh, managed to, to kind of rationalize that, but it's those 19 years that kind of make you think, has the Premier League learned anything about where the money comes from? And, you know, is it time for that reckoning? Um, and certainly the conversation is uh, much more animated now than it has been at any point in the past two decades.
3: So since we last covered this story, uh, uh, actual sanctions have been announced against Roman Abramovich. Some recent developments include Barclays pulling their uh, credit card servicing from the team. What are some of the effects that we might see of the sanctions on Chelsea? And a sale has been announced, but how would that actually, how would that actually work under these circumstances?
2: Well, that's the biggest issue for uh, for now, uh, at least in the immediate future of the club. Roman Abramovich, saw that sanctions were coming, which is why he moved first to transfer control of the club to the trustees of the charity. That plan didn't work out. Then he announced the sale. This all happened over the course of about a week. Um, And then the sanctions dropped and that meant he could no longer do business of any kind in the UK. So that put the sale on ice, at least temporarily, but they still have to figure out a way to offload the club uh, without Abramovich earning any money on it which is tough when you're asking <laughs> th- for three billion pounds. <laughs> um, so it's it's one of those situations where for the sale to go through, the UK government now has to rubber stamp it um, and, and make sure that uh, the funds go exclusively to the club, that Abramovich isn't doing business in the UK. Um, there are other effects like the capping of how much Chelsea can spend uh, mm. even operationally, to go to away games and things like that. Thomas Tuchel, the Chelsea manager, was joking that if he had to drive a bus to get the team to games, he would. Um, and then, of course, you know Chelsea has been one of the biggest spenders in the transfer market for two decades now. Um, and for the time being, they can't do that under the sanctions.
3: Chelsea, uh, the arrival of Roman Abramovich in 2003, lifted Chelsea from – you know, middling status, I would say, in in English football uh, to international powerhouses. Do we expect that that era of international influence, of elite level play is probably over?
2: Uh, it's hard to say because there will be some fabulously wealthy owner who comes in and agrees to continue spending at something close to that level. Um if the Premier League has taught us anything over the past 20 years, it's that a lot hangs on where that owner happens to be from and what their objectives are. If they, for instance, end up being some sort of consortium of uh, kind of wall street types who are hoping to moneyball this whole situation and actually make money out of English soccer. Uh, you won't see that kind of spending just because, you know, they're not inclined to come in and set money on fire. However, there are a lot of people who are, Um, Roman Abramovich was one of them, but we've seen it with, uh, groups from the Gulf who came in and invested and for whom the objective is not to make money or run a kind of stable business. It's about projecting a different image for the country. Um, so when you've got those two sets of objectives, you know, that really changes how the business is run.
3: What do we know about how Abramovich came into his billions uh, on his way to owning Chelsea Football Club. It's been a point of discussion in, in the years since Roman has arrived. I remember seeing a, a, a documentary, British documentary about uh, about Roman, where they were talking to Chelsea fans as they were walking to Stamford Bridge. And they were all just like, you know, hey. As long as the check's clear, who cares? And I think that that was, you know, that's a natural, uh, that's a natural feeling for for a football fan, uh, and for a fan of Chelsea, I think to have. But now that uh, there's there is intense pressure, you know, within England, uh, Boris Johnson is coming under fire from both sides of uh, the aisle about uh, relationships with money. Uh, These issues are being uh, really focused, questioned now. Where do we think Roman came up with his billions? How do we think that happened?
2: So a small group of people made a lot of money very fast in the scramble that came after uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Because all of these companies and all of these resources were suddenly available, whoever happened to be in power or control certain certain sectors like mining, like energy, um Was able in effect to, I mean, and you know, people who were there at the time talk about it being a totally Wild West situation, right? That you could scoop up licenses and businesses for pennies, and you know, suddenly you find yourself with a mining concession in Siberia. That may or may not turn into something, but in Roman's case, it did. Um, and pretty soon he was at the head of a company called Sibneft, um, where he had refineries and extraction going on in like really the far flung parts of Russia, you know, certain places where that are basically uninhabitable, but they had resources in the ground and he was pulling those out and selling them at rapidly increasing market prices and uh, found himself as, you know, one of the richest men in Russia very quickly. Um, And when he arrived in London in 2003 with uh, the goal to buy Chelsea or any club, actually he looked at Tottenham first decided it was a horrible place um, that's his, that's his opinion, by the way,
3: um, <laughs> so, as an Arsenal fan, maybe the one time in this segment that I'll agree, I'll agree with Roman
2: O'Brien. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I was told by a person who was in the car with him, uh, on their way up the Tottenham high road, that he looked around <laughs> and said, this is worse than Omsk.
3: What? <laughs> this is a man, by the way, who not, uh, was a governor of. I forget what area in Siberia he was the governor of. but for, So for him to make that statement is yeah. wild.
2: He he was not a fan of uh, the neighborhood around Tottenham Hotspur. So he uh, and he was mistakenly told that Arsenal was not for sale by his advisors and settled on Chelsea. And, you know, Chelsea did two things for him at a time when a lot of these post-Soviet barons were occasionally vanishing. Uh, this gave him a very public asset, you know it's tougher to get disappeared if you own one of the most popular teams in England mm. um also it's a very public asset in hard currency uh considering the way the ru- the ruble has always fluctuated over the past 30 years um you know this was something that he could hold on to and a place to pour a lot of pounds into
3: right it's uh one of the things that's clear about the post-soviet kind of uh chaotic era into the early 2000s was that anybody who made their millions and billions uh, in Russia also needed an exit strategy, which is why you're seeing now internationally uh, the, the sanctions biting and you're seeing scenes of yachts being uh, seized. Because if, you, if you're rich in Russia, what you want to be is rich outside of Russia.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And that's the era when he was not the only one to arrive in London. I mean, there was such an influx of of Russian money in London that, you know, became known as London grad.
3: So where does this all go? Players have, you know, communicated concern about their about their paychecks going forward. Uh, Certainly, you know the way the team the, the team will essentially be under some form of government management, indirect or directly. Where where, where does this go in the short to medium term?
2: Um, the hope is still that a sale can be agreed pretty quickly, um, and we're talking about anywhere in the next two to six weeks. Um, if that happens, uh, I think pretty quickly, Chelsea itself can resume business as usual. You know, even if. The questions won't stop, and you know it. It certainly creates tension, I think, for the manager and for the players. It's it's something that they can't neglect. But I, I don't foresee any major operational issues for the soccer team in the in the very short term. Um, if for some reason the sale process goes south, you know, then the the whole thing can fall apart very quickly, and you'd get a situation where you know Chelsea every month has such a huge nut to crack. Yeah. Um, And again, there's a lot of money swirling around soccer clubs, but not a lot of profits. And I think it's important to remember that because and various owners have told me this over the years. Basically, any spare dollar that goes into a club gets pushed straight to the players because the demands are so high when it comes to payroll. Um, So, you know, in a situation where a sale can't go through. The whole thing could unravel, you know, this summer when they players are out of contract, when they can't replace them, when they can't pay salaries properly, um, and, you know, they can't pay the bills, and then suddenly you have to have a government administrator, point penalties. I mean, you know, it it very quickly goes into, you know, Arsenal fanfic. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, And finally, I know that uh, we brought you on to to mainly talk about Chelsea, but the other team in this, uh, in that that match, was having issues of its own. The Newcastle coach Eddie Howe was uh, pretty aggressively grilled about uh, Saudi Arabia's record of executions um, after it was, you know, news in England. It was some 81 people uh, executed in a single day in Saudi Arabia that Eddie said that he would stick to football, which uh, I understand. But also these are these are fair questions. Uh, the relationship with with the Saudi Arabian uh, investment group, that seems to be going nowhere, but what about the, the image of Newcastle
2: going forward? A lot of Newcastle fans have decided this is the price they're going to pay, much in the same way uh, Chelsea fans agreed in 2003 that you know they were going to be known as Chelsea and right. that everyone was going to say, you guys just bought your success. They don't care about that. Success is success. Um, and basically for a team like Newcastle, which is the same position that Chelsea was in or similar position that Chelsea was in in the late 90s, you know, hasn't won a trophy in decades. You know, mm-hmm. this is a this is a starved fan base. And I'm not I'm not defending the position that uh you know you can just focus on on-field things and nothing else matters because it's clearly not true. But Eddie Howe has also made this deal and accepted that these are his employers and the questions are going to keep coming. Right. You know, that that doesn't go away. And I think that's really something that that is particular to soccer that maybe we don't see in US sports where Uh, American owners are just all from the same general pool of rich American dudes.
3: I mean, listen, I'm not a fan of uh, most sports owners in general, but, you know, when jumping from Stan Kroenke, who is a person I don't like and whose politics I don't like, but happens to own a team that I do like to, uh, you know, the Saudi investment group or Roman Abramovich, it is, it is a order of magnitude difference in the, in the level of, bad stuff that it feels right it's, it's with,
2: harder to draw a straight line between Stan Cronky right. and war crimes
3: yeah thank <laughs> think with that uh we'll, we will take our leave josh robinson uh thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out. See you next time. Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Draught. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this
1: juicy gem of a detour.